Welcome to New World of Work, a podcast exploring the new frontier of the modern workforce. I'm Rhys Black, Head of Workplace Design at Oyster, a global employment platform making it easier than ever to build a brilliant team on an international scale. On New World of Work, we'll hear from some of the world's best and brightest people and culture experts on cutting edge topics that people operations professionals need to hear today, all through a global lens. Join us as we navigate this new world of work together and learn more about each other along the way. We know that there's great talent to be found everywhere these days. That's in large part due to the high rates of connectivity many of us enjoy globally. However, this doesn't always translate into diverse hiring practices, especially in industries like tech, which tend to hire from the same two or three talent hubs in North America and Europe. So as PeopleOps leaders, how can we help to promote diversity and inclusion as we build and scale our teams? And more importantly, how can we empower the next generation of talent to pursue the careers they've always dreamed of, despite where they live? In this episode, I sit down with Hugh Chichester, the co-founder of Naya, a diversity hiring platform that connects underrepresented talent with global job opportunities. Supporting refugees and migrants, ethnic minorities, women, LGBTQ+, neurodivergent and physically disabled people, Naya works hard to promote diversity and inclusion in the tech industry while empowering candidates to pursue a fulfilling career in the industry. They also happen to be one of Oyster's partners. We've collaborated on our Oyster for Refugees program, which empowers companies to find refugee talent and hire them compliantly. Hugh and I discuss some of the current challenges in the tech industry Naya is helping to solve, how PeopleOps professionals can prioritize diverse hiring practices in their own companies, and why he believes the skill gap is a myth. I hope you enjoy the episode. So my name's Hugh Chichester. I'm one of the founders at, at Naya. It's not a name that screams diversity or social mobility, but it is a name that I hope in time will be synonymous with being part of a solution to that problem. When I started out, so when I left school, I, I went, into, went off to study politics. I wanted to kind of explore politics as a vehicle for, for change. And I think it was like a, a three-month internship in the US Senate that that bed to that aspiration, and I realised politics wasn't for me. Um, I left. I, can, I, I continued my studies because I loved it, um, but I left and, and then went into charity. I spent two years working in that sector, and I loved it. But again, just felt like the, the possibility for a real impact to do something really big just wasn't really there. So I moved into. I started working in social investment as a as an analyst, and I would go and support the startups that they invested in across Africa and in the UK. And then from there, moved into management consulting, um, wanted to really learn how to, how to run things at scale and run things well. I was a program manager at a couple of investment banks for a bit. And then 18 months ago, I, I packed that into Start Naya. Fantastic. Thanks for the background. And you, you kind of started to allude to it there, but why did you decide to launch Naya? The main reason was for us was it seemed obvious. I'd worked with refugees in the past. We, when we first started, we were specifically focused on on refugee employment and I'd done some work with refugees in various capacities before and as a, a program manager working in banks I had a serious skills gaps within my own team and I knew the whole sector did and I always felt that the narrative around refugee talent was all wrong 
too much. We look at the we look at the kind of refugee crises and we think of it as a problem uh, rather than seeing those people, those groups of people, as solutions to the problems that we have in our in our global labour market. And we just felt no one else was looking at it that way, and it was just a great opportunity to change the narrative, add value to people who were in a in a tricky position. And uh, my my co-founder grew up in the Middle East, so he had similar experiences working with kind of hidden talent. And yeah, it just kind of came together. If you could put it into a few lines, what is the vision? What is the mission of Naya? So our vision, so I said we started specifically with refugees. We, we then started looking at how do we create a more diverse, fair and equitable workplace without barriers to opportunity, which kind of falls under the umbrella of social mobility. And that was the world we wanted to live in. So our, our mission is to make that simple for businesses. So to engage companies in the idea of social mobility and inclusion for underserved groups by making it easy for them to do that. And that's our that's our reason of existing is how do we build tools and products and marketplaces and frameworks that make it simple for someone working in a um, in the tech sector in London to go and find and hire and engage with talent from a from a disadvantaged background. So obviously Naya and Oyster are I think very, very um ideologically aligned you could say we're, we're partners in business and you use very similar language to to us as well so on your website one of the, the the terms that's on there is talent is everywhere but opportunities are not could you maybe talk a little bit around this maybe expand a bit on the statement and how that connects to what you do i've always felt that the narrative around the skills gap is a bit of a myth or at least not the complete picture I don't know if you've ever had this, but you've ever been in like an Uber and got chatting to the driver and you start to find out where they're from. And the more you dig, you find out they've got a master's in some like amazing degree from the Middle East somewhere. And I, I used to get that all the time and it used to frustrate me. It's like frustrate me that they they were driving an Uber rather than working in the field that their master's was kind of geared to. And that's where that kind of sense of look, talent is all around us. We're just we're just looking in the wrong places. And you know, if you if you engage further with people in that position, they could list a number of different uh, reasons for why they haven't had fair opportunity or fair access. Perhaps they're a refugee or an asylum seeker. Perhaps they've migrated. They just don't have that network, internal network and community. They can't afford the resources needed to to upskill in, in a new environment. And so, really, it's just for us. It was like, how do we create a, an ecosystem? It's essentially what we are—an ecosystem that connects. All the different providers that exist, like Oyster, to enable you know people working in the Middle East. I mean, we've got we've we've been working with Oyster to pay individuals living in places like Lebanon and Saudi Arabia who are women who, prior to the pandemic, get for them to access education was almost impossible because they culturally they're not allowed to leave their communities. All of that went online. Suddenly, they've upskilled. They've learned how to code or do web development, and then now their barrier is, well, how do I get a job because I still can't leave my community and there's no there's no jobs for web developers where they live. And so for, for us, with the access to that talent to partner with Oyster, who can who can pay them and ensure that it's transparent, equitable and fair, it's such a great opportunity that we live in at the moment to, to start providing those opportunities so that amazing talent that's hidden all around the world has fair access. One of the barriers that I've seen or, or, or problems in some of those situations are is that their degrees are not quote unquote internationally recognized. Do you see that being a problem in any of the work that you're doing? I feel I feel almost like in tech companies particularly, 
there's less of a focus or a snobbery around, you know, you have to have a certain degree from a certain place anyway. Do you feel like it goes a step further to say that just because your degree is not quote unquote uh, internationally recognized, I'm sure you're, you're highly talented anyway. I feel like that is a kind of arbitrary barrier that hopefully is not causing problems. I think it is arbitrary and I think it's an easy problem to solve. And I can tell you what we're looking at doing to try and solve it which is kind of like a benchmarking system. So it's, no, it's not difficult to build a kind of data glossary that has all the different qualifications out there in the world related to any skill, whether from a university or a coding boot camp, and to find ways to benchmark the quality against more familiar. So, so let's say you're, you're in the UK and you're looking at a, a, a CV and the person has a computer science degree from the University of Damascus, right? Now, if you're from the UK, you'd be familiar with the kind of Russell Group collection of universities that you, you understand the the environment but someone where does the university of damascus fit in and that how is that is that a good university is it not so i think there's a, a relatively easy way of creating a, a model that that can benchmark institutions against each other i mean we do it in the uk we have a way of grading a politics degree from from one university versus another like where they sit on the tables so there's no reason we can't do that and make it global the other piece that's quite exciting around web3 and the development in that space is how you can get peer-to-peer validation. So that's not just around benchmarking, okay, well, how good are, how good are their qualifications, but also do they, are they real? Who can attest? How do I know this person genuinely went, this certificate is real, they went through that, that system, that program, and to have alumni attest to, you know, to each other and their qualifications is a great way for employers to get more assurance around not just the quality, but the actual validation of, of people's qualifications. Why do you think it is so important for a company's success and their culture to be hiring from such a diverse talent pool? I know McKinsey do a lot of research into this space and I think they have a, a big stat that 30, there's a 33% return on investment for companies that have invested in into building more diverse teams. So I think that now we're starting to see that the, the proof is in the pudding in terms of the outcomes. More diverse teams are better performing. They also, I think, build better solutions because people, if you have diversity of thought, you have different ways of breaking down problems and looking at them. So that's like another area where I think the market is starting to realize that there's, you know, there's, there's more than one way to skin a cat. And if you can have that diversity of thought, then you can look at different ways of solving problems. But there's another big piece, which is retention. Because we, when we started out and we started speaking to internal recruiters and HR leads, a lot of people were saying, well, it's Finding the talent is, is hard, and then, but then retaining the talent is even harder. And we did some research into re- the refugee demographics specifically and found that they offer a 73% better retention rate than other employees. And that was, again, an example of when you, I think when you invest, when you're working with people who, where you're giving them an opportunity that maybe other, otherwise wouldn't have had, you're immediately creating a bond that I think is then deeper and it's harder to break or want to break. Um, from either side. So, so I think retention can kind of can come into it as well. And I certainly found when I was working in industry that a lot of people would join because there was a lot of talk around inclusion and diversity and they liked the companies that were kind of talking about it. But it's, it's one thing to talk about it and it's another thing to implement it. And so people often will join a company because they, it, they, they're perceived to be doing a lot in this space, but quickly feel like actually it's just talk and there's not a lot of action and it's not translating. And then, you know, those people will move on quite quickly. One of the things that uh, I guess I have personally also felt after years of working uh, in distributed teams and, and with people around the world, and I've seen others struggle with too, is being a manager of such a diverse team that 
could be from 10 different cultures in 10 different places around the world to be a manager and effectively understand their realities can be really tough. What are your thoughts on that? How have you seen some managers or organizations sort of bridge that gap? Yeah, well, I mean, what you're touching on is, I guess, empathy. And, you know, I think empathy in the, in the tech space in particular, empathy is is the foundation of pretty much everything that is built. You know, you have to empathize with your user, understand how do they think, how do they feel, how do they respond to different situations. And, and so often, I think we put a lot of emphasis on the empathy of our users and not of our people. You know, a customer success manager, their job would be to obsess about their customer. And you have to have good empathy to do that. But uh, uh, someone who's a people lead or an, an HR lead, they need to obsess about their people. They need to know what are your people, when they log in every day, what are they hearing? What are they seeing? What are they thinking? What are they feeling? And if you don't know how to answer that for someone in Beirut or for someone from, uh, I don't know, from a, a neurodiverse background, let's say, then I think that's, that needs to be a priority to build out those empathy maps. And there's a, an organization that I think who, I mean, you mentioned who's doing it well, a company that we work with is a company called And Digital, and they're a, a kind of tech consultancy firm building products. They've scaled quite quickly and, and really well through using a system of kind of growth pods. So when they build out functionalities or build out teams, they do it in these little cross-functional teams of about eight, almost like a scrum size, and they do that regionally. So rather than just hiring maybe one person out of a certain region who's kind of a bit on their own, a bit isolated, they'll look to build a team around that person in that area. So rather than individuals dispersed, they now have all these pods. They started doing it in the UK and, and they're now pretty global. They have all these pods all over the world. And those pods together can kind of back each other, support each other. I guess they have a louder voice internally in the company because there's more than just one of them. And so I think that that model is a really great way of looking at how to build diverse and dispersed teams is rather than looking at it as just hiring individuals, but build a team, build small but a large volume of small teams globally. And you'll bring in that diversity of thought, but you'll also bring in the infrastructure to ensure that people are heard and supported in that. I guess thinking about the listener, thinking about the person that's listening to this podcast right now as a, as a people leader in their organizations, how do you think they can help their organization get comfortable with that and, and to think about, okay, we want to be hiring diverse for these reasons. We want to be building teams around the world, maybe with this pod structure or, or otherwise. How can they sort of approach that? I guess empathy, it comes back to empathy a little bit, but from there, then building out that strategy, like what, what is high performance look like? What does inclusion look like? And how do you build out a strategy for your recruitment teams and your people teams to, to facilitate that? I mean, when it comes specifically to, to recruitment as well, like I'm a big advert for hiring people, not experience, especially in the tech sector. We get this a lot. People want to hire, like what experience do they have? Do they have the relevant experience? That's normally because someone's told them, gone and said, hey, we need, a, we need this person and we needed them yesterday. So if you could find someone who's who can start tomorrow and pick up straight away. You know, and that's that's kind of the mandate that a lot of, I think, recruiters feel that they're working off. And so they're looking for people who have relevant experience rather than looking for great people who they'll take a bit of time to upskill. But in the long run, you're saving yourself the time of dealing with churn and poor retention rates and having to go and re-recruit and retrain. And so I think a big piece of that strategy needs to be how do you equip people to find like good people? And I'll give you an example. When I worked in at Capco, which was the consultancy I worked for, um, one of my bosses there, he used to hire people out of, like, this was, they did financial services and tech. So those are the domains they worked in. He used to hire people out of bars. He would work, he would find someone who was running the show in a bar. They had great people skills, great customer service skills. They had great team leadership skills, the kind of stuff that's hard to teach. 
zero experience in finance, zero experience in tech or project management, but he would go, right, I need you to apply. I want to hire you. I want to bring you into my teams. And it would take them a couple of weeks to get up to speed. But because they had those amazing business skills and communication skills, they would far outperform, given a bit of time, a lot of their peers. And that's kind of where I learned that lesson. I watched a film last night called Erin Brockovich, I think it's called. It's quite an old film now, like to the air, Julia Roberts. Yeah. If anyone wants to learn about why you should hire people over experience, that film will tell you everything you need to know. True story, phenomenal story. And um, yeah, I'd, I'd encourage people after the podcast to go and check that out to learn why, why you should hire people, not, not experience. <laughs> pause the podcast, go watch Erin Brockovich, come yeah, back. <laughs> pause, Google it, add it to your watch list replay the podcast and then go and watch it tonight <laughs> no but that, that, that's, that's a sentiment I, I completely agree with we all know that bias is a problem in hiring and you may think that you're the, the least biased person and the most fair most egalitarian you very quickly realize you have a mental model especially when you're scanning you know dozens of cvs at a time like you feel like you're really missing diamonds in the rough, you know, you're, you're, you're passing up on amazing people. And that is a, that's a really sad thing. Definitely. I think that is why there needs to be often some kind of broker or in, intermediator. But it, we often, I mean, we hear from back from a lot of companies that they don't want to work with recruitment agencies anymore because they have those functions in-house. So I guess on one, on one side of it, you're needing to train up your teams to be able to spot that and scout that. And if you're looking to hire more globally and, and more diverse, then you probably need to hire people into your recruitment teams who know that stuff, right? So if you have a, I mean, we, we, we focus on diversity inclusion in tech, but like, it does start with recruitment. We, we're wondering whether we should be helping to recruit recruiters from a diverse background. Because if you're, if there are regions that you want to hire for more certain demographics that, you know, if you feel that there is like, for example, let's say you feel like your gender balance is out of kilter in your organization, you want to hire more women or men, whichever side. First thing I would do is look at my recruitment teams and say, hang on, do we have people who can empathize with those sorts of people and, and, and help us find people who are high quality? So I think it's, there's a piece there, but I think the piece then around platforms and, and intermediators, I think there's, there's a few out there now and we're certainly we're trying to build an ecosystem that makes it easier for companies to not just find, but also assess and validate the quality of the kind of talent that they're that they're working with. And we do that through our network of partners where people have gone through different training boot camps and they've built community. And again, I mentioned earlier, the peer-to-peer based, I think that peer-to-peer based validation model, which which has never been quite taken off before, will be much more powerful through a kind of Web3 social network. So I think that's something, it may still be a few years before it really takes off, but there's an opportunity there. Uh, fundamentally, for me, it comes down to having that diversity of thought throughout your organization, rather than just focusing on hiring, like hiring for certain roles in-house. What about your recruitment teams? What about your leadership teams? Are they reflective of the type of people that you want to hire? I completely agree. And, and as well as that, not necessarily only just hiring people in at that level immediately, giving them a path to that level. Because, you know, we have to be pragmatic, we have to be realistic that for, for certain roles in companies, particularly maybe exec level, the, the, the talent pool for someone out of a particular tech hub m- might be very limited. You know, th- th- it just might not be there right now. But if you're a company that's committed to this, then you can make sure that you have the career progression plans in place in your organization that, okay, maybe that talent is not there right now, but you can grow that talent. You know, that person could could then exist in a couple of years if you give them the path to be the 
the CFO or, or whatever it is in, in a few years' time. I think it's, it's important for people to hire these talented individuals now, or it's as important to give them a path to be that in a few years' time as it is to hire them now. Absolutely. I think that comes that complements quite nicely, that piece around finding people rather than the experience. And I think it's a real headache. I mean, a lot of people, especially in tech, again, they're really looking for experience that actually doesn't even exist in the market because it's moved so quickly, the demands are so high. So really, I'd, I would always encourage companies to, hey, take your time and look for the right people and invest in their, like you say, in their training. How do you think about how you get them to where it is that they need to be in six months time rather than trying to hire someone who will be there straight away? Prioritizing diversity and inclusion in the workplace is much more than just a good PR move. It's just a good move, period. As Hugh reminds us, companies with diverse teams are better equipped to solve problems and foster creative thinking than teams with only one or two different viewpoints. Many companies have come around to this idea, but the way we approach building a diverse workforce still needs to change if we want to attract and retain the world's best talent. Our employee expectations report revealed that diversity and inclusion is one of the top factors employees look for when joining a company today. For more on what employees expect out of their employer in 2022 and beyond, grab a free copy of the report at the following bit.ly link, bit.ly forward slash oyster report. I repeat, that's bit.ly forward slash oyster report, or use the link in the show notes. We all have internal biases, whether we like it or not. And when it comes to hiring practices, it can often be difficult to separate these biases from the candidate's true potential. In Hugh's words, it all comes down to empathy and having the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes. As PeopleOps professionals, we need to be able to view the talent pool from a wider lens and consider the possibilities instead of always focusing on what might go wrong. Let's hear more of what Hugh had to say about diverse hiring practices and how the game is changing for talent managers everywhere. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more uh, about Naya. It'd be, it'd be great to hear more about how you are bridging the sort of digital and diversity divide, as I've seen people call it. We started out focusing really purely on jobs and basically finding talent for, for roles and taking this kind of underutilized talent pool and matching it with the gaps in the market and what we're starting to build out now is a more holistic ecosystem kind of like how booking.com started with providing rooms to travelers um, but now if you go to booking.com you can book your flights your car your room your restaurant your tour around the city everything that a traveler might need can be done through booking.com and it makes it easy for me as a traveler to to, to do what i want to do on my vacation so in a similar way, what we're trying to do is, since we've launched, we've found every kind of technology that is required to make social mobility easier and more powerful exists. They just haven't been stuck together in, into like an ecosystem that makes it, because the people with the money, so if you, if you look at it at a purely supply and demand, you have people with a talent, but they maybe don't have resources and funds to develop that and grow it. And then you have companies that have funds, but they don't have talent. So essentially all you're trying to do is create a marketplace where those two parties can engage and anything that's needed to facilitate their development and their growth, the growth of that relationship, but kind of becomes services within the marketplace. So whether it's finding someone 
running assessments and vetting, um, paying them remotely as you guys do, whether it's providing training as well so that they're trained on the day that they start work, they've already had some, some relevant training, whether it's relocating someone, helping sponsor their visa, all that kind of stuff that needs to happen. We're trying to build an ecosystem that puts all of that in one place so that for a company who, for someone whose mandate is to not just grow their teams, but to build more diverse teams, they know that that Nair is the go-to place to do that because they can achieve all of those things in one place. They don't have to juggle hundreds of partnerships with all kinds of different organizations. They, they can come to the Nair marketplace and yeah, run it, have that end-to-end service. One thing I'd be interested in hearing about is does it ever take any convincing on the employee side? And I don't mean convincing from the point of view that they are not that interested. I mean more in terms of helping people understand and convincing them that it's actually possible. So we have Oyster Academy uh, that we offer and it has various different training programs to give people fundamentals on on skills, on, on how to work well in, in distributed companies. And we've had, we've had many people from similar backgrounds go through Oyster Academy. And one of the things that uh, I find sometimes is people will go through this whole intense training program and by the end of the uh, the course, I guess the furthest their mind has has opened up to the possibility is that they can get a remote job in Lebanon or in Egypt or in their country. And I, I, you don't have to say to them, no, look, like you can get a job with any company in the world now, whether it's a US company, a German company, a Chinese company, if you wanted to. Do you ever feel like the, you're, you face similar things to, to show people the possibilities and make them believe it? Yeah, I think definitely people in all cultures you have some people think bigger than others. I think something I don't, I'd be interested to know whether you guys do much around growth mindset or kind of victim victor mentalities. So, one of the things that we're trying, we're starting to launch a lot more of is our, our workshops and events program and build out a, a really kind of robust series that we can run on a regular basis that, that can kind of they can feed into those sort of things. And for me, definitely the growth mindset training, there's lots of stuff online and great material around how you build a, a growth mindset. And the other piece, when I worked with the, um, I used to work with a social enterprise in London that did long-term, they worked with people who are long-term unemployed and tried to help them get into work. And the most powerful piece of training they provided was on this victim-victim mentality and and getting people to kind of, yeah, essentially step out of a victim mentality. People who have been, who have been a victim, like it's not that they haven't been a victim. It's not that they haven't been disadvantaged in some way they have, but it's not letting them then take that on as their identity and their mindset and actually teaching people a, a victim mindset. And I think that that was the most powerful uh, training for a lot of the candidates who were successful in that program, who moved on and held down work. They will always point back to that training being a bit of a turning point. So I think it, it does come through through that. And I also think through building great networks where people feel encouraged and inspired because through that you can create stories and case studies. And I think that's the other piece that's really powerful is People will believe that when they see it. You know, so I'll believe it if I see it. And if they can see someone who's like them, same from the same background as them, who has achieved what they ultimately thought they could never achieve, and has shown them that they're just they're just a, a normal person who was resourceful and and committed and I don't know, found access to resources that could help. But just showing that there's there's nothing special about those people, but giving those case studies that will inspire people in a similar similar position to following those footsteps i think that's so important so yeah case studies and and good good content i agree seeing is believing so 
let's say there's a there's, there's a people leader that's listening to the podcast right now and you know this has got them fired up and and they're really keen to do this whether it's vnia or or uh, otherwise what would you say to them to take a step forward to to pitch this to their exec team and and, and how to sort of communicate this how would you how would you say to approach it I think, well, to take a step forward, I think take a step back first. It kind of starts with being able to look at the bigger picture. So I, I heard that, I think it was, again, it might have been a McKinsey thing, I can't remember, so maybe I shouldn't get quoted on it, but I saw a stat that was 96% of people who were surveyed want some form of remote work. So remote work is here to stay. The markets for diversity and inclusion, you know, the market size of that industry is growing rapidly and is predicted to triple in the next, I think, by by the end of this decade. So there's some trends that are there that, that suggest that things are moving in the right direction. So I think it's for someone who's a people leader, it's taking a step back and looking at the processes and the infrastructure that's there currently. I think when it comes down to influencing decision makers, it's always a cost-benefit analysis. It's always, how can you show that this will benefit the growth of a company? How will this impact the bottom line? If you can demonstrate that hiring remote teams, hiring more diverse people, will ultimately improve your bottom line as a company. If you can show good, like a good methodological thinking to that outcome, then I think you can really get uh, execs to buy in on it because once that's ticked, I mean, the, it, the trends are all there. It's seen now, you know, it's a positive thing to be thinking about those things in the market. It's attractive. It's good for talent attraction. So really, uh, it's just demonstrating that you could run something, something that could improve that bottom line kind of hypothesizing it and then running a pilot to go and test it. And we've done pilots with various companies. I know that Oyster have done pilots as well to kind of trial things and see how things work and learn, okay, what worked, what didn't work. So looking at things as a bit of a, of a pilot as well, I think helps to get buy-in from stakeholders. What do you think this looks like? If there is a company that adopts this now and you know puts in the hard work and, and commits to this long term, what, what does a company like that look like in, in five or 10 years time? So I think it's more than just people, it's tooling, it's policies, it's procedures, it's how do you embed the culture. And so what I would expect, I think with remote work at the moment, the, the pandemic's really accelerated remote work and, and the tooling that comes with it anyway. But I think we'll see in as early as 10 to 15 years, a kind of remote culture where you and I will be on headsets, we'll feel like we're in the room together, maybe we'll be in some sort of avatar, metaverse type thing, um, bit dystopian. But I think we'll look back at things like Zoom, the way we currently look back at like Windows 97 and Microsoft Publisher and WordArt and those sorts of things where we'll, we'll, we'll be like, oh, do you remember that ancient thing or the way that, I mean, hopefully Zoom will still be successful and doing well, but we'll look at like the logo and the brand and be like, do you remember what it was like, those early Zoom calls? Um, those kind of clunky conference calls. And so I think the tooling will, will advance a lot. And so it's so important in the strategy for hiring more globally, hiring more or diverse is thinking about what tooling to invest in now and grow towards. I think, yeah, building out that culture as well. And we talk, spoke there about org structures and how do you how do you ensure that teams are set up to succeed in those areas. So I think there'll be some really interesting things being published in the next few years around uh, ways of working you know, what it means for, for ways of working and agile and lean and how those can be adapted into remote work. So I'd be looking out for that as well. And then I guess the future of recruitment. Yeah, I mean, what, what does recruitment look like when it's more global, when you're recruiting for certain skills and talent and suddenly region's not a, not a barrier and you're opening up, you know, your recruitment teams to a world of opportunity, but also like 
where do I start? Where do I, how do I, like you say, how do I hire someone in Nigeria or in Lebanon? So I think, yeah, those, the, the platforms and the training that come with that as well. But certainly I hope, I, my, my hope for the future of work is to have these amazingly diverse teams. They'll be sitting on really exciting kind of conference calls and medicals and make you feel like you're in the room with the people that you're with, that I can kind of walk over and tap you on the shoulder, all from my kitchen table, um, check in, see how you're doing. I think that's, that's how I see it. If we're talking about the 10 year in the future company that, that adopts this as of now, or has been going down this path for the last few years, I hope that we see a situation where there is true diversity. I mean, I'm an optimist, so I'm hopelessly optimistic at times. And you're right. I think, I basically think that there's, there's never been a better time to act on diversity and inclusion than now. The pandemic's accelerated that, and that's exciting. But I do think that there is always a kind of, there are always like risks when, when things change quickly and move fast. You know, how do you manage growth well? Anyone who's worked in the startup kind of sphere will know that you don't want to grow too quick. I get it. Scaling too fast can be a problem. And I think it's similar in this kind of, if, if the growth is too quick, it can cause other kind of disruptions and have knock-on impacts. So it will take time. And, and actually, something that you mentioned there, kind of coming back to the question of what will it look like in 10 years' time and triggered something which I haven't spoken about, which is kind of behind, again, a bit behind why we started this company, which is um, around building products and services that work for everyone. So we haven't really just talked about why we focus specifically on, on tech, but it kind of comes from a bit of a story about my background. When I was young, I have three sisters. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this when you've been to public events with either sisters or, or girlfriends or things like that. But we used to go to, I don't know, a concert. And we would get there and we'd say, oh, let's quickly use the bathroom before we, before we go to the gig. And then you'd go to the public loo. The women would be queuing down the street to try and get in. And I would just be able to walk straight in. And then I'd come out and I'd, have, and I'd sit and wait for my sisters. It would take them five, six, seven times as long. And I always kind of, I always question, why is that the case? And the answer was quite simply that those services were designed by men and it was therefore more convenient for men to use them. And it came back to that empathy thing. That It wasn't that those people were bad people who were designing them. They just couldn't empathize with the type of user that they were building something for. And when, if we think about technology, what my worry is at the moment is, are we, I mean, tech alone is, let's stick with the gender thing. Tech alone is 80% men in the tech workforce. So still huge gender disparity in technology. What if we're therefore building products without really realizing it, that our, our unconscious bias is inherent in the code, in the design, in the architecture? How is that going to impact people from a, who are poorly represented in that industry? How is it going to impact the refugee? How is it going to impact the disabled person? How is it going to impact the migrant and that's kind of why we really wanted to focus on the tech industry because we felt, again, we're at an inflection point with this industrial revolution and where it is now. We have a huge opportunity to leverage a massive skills demand to create a better opportunity and better life for a lot of people. And in doing so, create a much more well-represented workforce to create products that, that work for all. So I guess kind of coming back to your, your point, the proof will be in the pudding. To, to know that we've achieved creating a genuinely diverse workforce will look like creating products and services that don't seem to bias against certain people and certain types of people. And then, and then that's how we'll know, I think. I love that. Don't build urinals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let's, let's start bringing this home. 
tell us what's what's next for for you and for Naya. So we want to build out this really vibrant community around what we do, um, passionate um, people who want to be part of this solution. So we encourage anyone to get in touch, whether whatever type of stakeholder you might class yourself as. We would know ways that people can contribute to this idea of social mobility. And so, yeah, we want to build up that community of individuals, of organizations who in different ways can provide resources, tooling, job opportunities, community that can enable it. So that's what we want to build out. We, we kind of see three main pillars that are needed for social mobility to happen. The first is community and network. How, you know, for, for some people who haven't been fortunate enough to go to a certain type of university in a certain type of country, they probably don't have the same community and network and alumni to draw on that, that, that someone else would. So how do we kind of balance the playing field there a little bit through building community and building network? The other piece then is around resources and education. So how do we give fair access to training? I remember hearing a refugee speak at the World Economic Forum once who said, stop giving us your charity and teach us a skill. Teach us how to do something. Like how do we create opportunities for that? And then the final piece is around, yeah, job market conversion and, and opportunities. So creating a, a whole catalog of internships and jobs and training that can that can be really accessible for all people. And that's kind of how we see our product growing out with all the underlying services underneath that that can enable those things to, to happen. So that's kind of our big vision and what we're, what we're looking to build out in the next couple of years on our roadmap. Very exciting. Uh, okay, so final question, question that we ask everyone that comes on the podcast. What's the best mistake you've ever made and why? The best mistake I think I ever made was accidentally visiting a refugee camp, which might be a story for another time because it's a story in and of itself how I ended up there. But that, if, if I hadn't found myself unwittingly in that position, I don't know that no, I would be here today. Thank you very much, Hugh. That was fantastic. My conversation with Hugh helped to shed light on so many important aspects of the hiring process today and how it's evolved dramatically in just a few years. Here are a few of my key takeaways from this episode. Hugh shared so many powerful reminders of the importance of keeping empathy at the forefront of everything that we do. As talent managers or people loss professionals, we hold the power to uplift people's lives in our hands and create opportunities where there were none before. So this is an especially important lesson to keep in mind. With the tech revolution happening more quickly than ever before, it makes more sense than ever to hire people based on their inherent human qualities instead of just what's on their resume. Hiring talent based on fleeting buzzwords or titles won't get you far, but hiring based on values, principles and attitudes always will. Seeing is believing. The more we're able to act as champions for diversity and inclusion in the workplace, the more we will inspire others to pursue careers they love. By helping people see themselves represented in a wide range of roles and industries, we'll ultimately be creating a springboard for others to strengthen their belief in their own potential. If you're interested in what today's job seekers are looking for in an employer, be sure to check out the 2022 Employee Expectations Report by visiting the link in the show notes or visiting bit.ly forward slash oyster report. Thank you for listening to New World of Work. 
the podcast exploring the new frontier of the modern workforce through an international lens. We hope this episode served to expand your horizons and open your mind to a new perspective. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so that we can reach more listeners. I'm your host, Reese Black. See you next time.